Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features AI, artificial intelligence, made in 2001. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. We've entered 2001 in our journey through John Williams' film career, and this is undoubtedly the best year for John Williams' music since 1993. Both 1993 and 2001 delivered strong one-two punches in terms of scores, with music that continues to stand at some of the best material Williams has created. The year started with Steven Spielberg's AI, Artificial Intelligence a film that received a lot of criticism claiming Spielberg butchered the main premise of the story in favor of turning it into a four-hanky movie. As I will detail for you, it was the original director who was in favor of making us cry in the final minutes of the film, and Spielberg simply took that angle and turned the dial up a bit. The story of AI started in the mid-1970s with Stanley Kubrick. The writer-director was well-known for creating some bizarre tales that left many audience members scratching their heads over what it meant. The film choices he made also caused some difficulty for fans to figure out what film Kubrick would direct next. Dr. Strangelove, A Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, Barry Lyndon, Spartacus, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Shining. None of these films were similar to each other, but almost all of them have been deemed masterpieces. In a surprise decision, Kubrick decided after directing The Shining to return to the science fiction genre with AI, based on a short story about a robot boy who wants to become human. Kubrick was only interested in producing the movie. He felt Steven Spielberg was the logical choice to direct it. But the project stalled because Kubrick could not figure out a way to accurately depict a robot child. Adult-like robots had been easy to do in movies, but how to find a child that could act like a somewhat human robot? Kubrick shelved the project because none of the special effects wizards could figure out how to make it work. Kubrick returned to the idea of making AI in 1995, just as Spielberg was ready to start his new company, DreamWorks. Spielberg already had three films on his plate, the Jurassic Park sequel, Amistad, and Saving Private Ryan. So Kubrick planned to direct Eyes Wide Shut while Spielberg was busy with these three films. On March 7, 1999, Kubrick died in his sleep at age 70. Eyes Wide Shut opened that summer to a lot of anticipation as the final Kubrick film, and because of all the reported nudity and sex between then-husband and wife Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. The looky-loos showed up in the first couple of weeks, but then the film fizzled out after that. So let's get back to AI. Kubrick's death fast-tracked that film into production, and luckily, Spielberg was ready. In late 1999, Spielberg was in contention to direct the first Harry Potter film, and the following quote from him in an interview seemingly convinced him that it wasn't worth it. Quote, It's just like withdrawing a billion dollars and putting it into your personal bank accounts. There's no challenge. End quote. So, Spielberg took on the challenge of bringing AI to the screen. Spielberg took all of Kubrick's notes and all of the screen treatments written over the past 20 years, molding it into his own screenplay. This would be Spielberg's first screenplay credit since writing Poltergeist in 1982. The story follows closely that of Pinocchio, the famous tale of a wooden puppet who becomes a real boy after going on an adventure to prove his worth. In AI, a mother and father, Monica and Henry, adopt a robot boy named David while their real son is in a coma, unlikely to wake up. Monica basically programs David to love her and only her unconditionally, and after she abandons him in a forest, that love propels David on his adventure to become a real boy so Monica can love him in return. The movie does have some Spielberg touches, notably the very obvious cinematography artistry by Janusz Kaminski. But this is the first Spielberg movie since The Sugarland Express to deal expressly with the relationship between a mother and child. You could say that the color purple is about Celie's love for her lost children, but that is not the primary focus. 
Most of Spielberg's films after the Sugarland Express, especially Jaws, Close Encounters, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, were about fathers and sons. Those were told in the middle of big action movies. And AI is definitely not a big action movie. No explosions, no major chases. I mean, the closest thing to an action scene in AI is the robot roundup scene in the forest. And the other big Spielberg touch in AI is, of course, a sentimental score by John Williams. But it doesn't lay on the sentimentality very thick. Williams made a very interesting choice with this score, keeping a lot of the emotion very cold and unfeeling until the final 20 minutes. Our main character is a robot, after all, through the entire film, and Williams comments on that with synthesized instruments, or orchestral instruments made to sound a little unfamiliar and less organic. Before we go on, I want to speak a little bit about Haley Joel Osment, the actor who plays David. Osment was Spielberg's only choice for David, and it's a good idea that Spielberg didn't run with Kubrick's plan to mix computer effects with a human actor for David. Osment proved how good an actor he was with his Oscar-nominated breakout performance in The Sixth Sense in 1999, and was at the top of the list of all child actors at the time. No other child actor at the time, I think, could have handled this role. Frankie Muniz would have had a hard time convincing people he could do drama after his debut the year before in the TV comedy Malcolm in the Middle. Shia LaBeouf might have been just a couple of years too old for the part. And Liam Aiken, who had been in Stepmom just three years earlier, might have been too cute. This is a great performance by Osmond, who is in almost every scene of the movie. And the great acting choice of not blinking his eyes at all carried over to his co-star and former Oscar rival, Jude Law, who took that advice and played a robot gigolo with great ease. If not for Osmond and Law, the film would have been a little less interesting. Well, I should add that without John Williams' score, the film would not have been as interesting. There are many scenes that are lifted by his music, but not many of them in the first 45 minutes. As I said, most of the score in the first act of the film feels, well, cold. Here's the music that plays when David is introduced. And then a new melody comes in on the electronic keyboard that was replaced in the film by random notes on a scale. Nice orchestral atmospheric music here as Monica and Henry talk before that unused melody is used in the film as Monica mentions that David is just a child. The next cue in the film expands on that nice melody as Monica and David spend their first day together alone in the house. David is curious about the things he sees and wants to follow Monica everywhere. Since David thinks it's a game, Williams makes that melody fun and playful, mixing some piano in with synthesized notes. ¶¶ 
We'll call that the fun and games theme, as it will come in handy at the end of the film. We've reached the pivotal moment in the film when Monica imprints on David now. The music, as Monica says the words that will transform David into a child who will love her forever, is nondescript, allowing us to focus on the words and not the music. David's face changes, and then he calls Monica, Mommy. In the piano are the beginnings of what we're going to call the love theme between David and Monica. This theme isn't fully realized in the imprinting scene. It's just the first part of that love theme because, well, that's often how Williams structures his themes when first introduced. That theme isn't really coming back for another two hours in the film, so don't worry about missing it. There is one piece of music that should count as a theme, but is only used sparingly, and most people have trouble labeling it. I would like to call it Martin's theme, named for the human son who awakes from his coma, and works to get David in trouble and eventually removed from the family. The theme introduces itself when Martin returns home, then a bit later after David almost drowns Martin when they fall into the pool. David's love for Monica has made him a danger to everyone around him. Henry has decided that enough is enough, and the decision is made off-camera to send David back to the factory to be destroyed. After David agrees to go for a drive with Monica, Martin's theme plays, insinuating that Martin's plan is starting to work. Not sure what to make of that rising note at the end of the theme. It suggests heroism for Martin instead of the inherent villain that he is. But the plan does succeed, so in essence, the motif should show that. And we, After that scene where Monica plans the drive with David, we cut to the next day when David, Monica, and the toy bear Teddy are in the car. An ostinato floating up and down the scale gives us a bit of tension before the piano underscores Monica's sadness.
Martin's theme again here as they approach the factory. The music for the rest of this scene doesn't really try to create tension, but with the rumbling strings, we know this just might not end well. The music is just bubbling underneath, which any good composer would know to do in order to get out of the way of the important dialogue. David believes this is another game of hide-and-seek, but Monica is trying to make David understand that he won't be coming back home with her. As David pleads to keep Monica from deserting him, Martin's theme plays out on the piano, a bit stronger now. Here comes the ostinato again under Martin's theme. And here comes the best 30 seconds of music in the film, with Martin's theme fully realized in the strings and horns. I distinctly remember my reaction in summer 2001 as I was watching this scene unfold on the big screen. The piano notes at the end took my breath away because those chaotic notes were perfectly underscoring how I felt about Monica actually leaving David behind. It seemed like Williams was writing music based on his perceived emotion and the craziness of someone leaving a child to his own devices in the woods, even if that child is a robot. I'm glad the screen faded to black for about five seconds after that because I needed a bit of time to pull myself together. I doubt John Williams played piano here, but whomever was responsible for that surely had a great time pounding out those notes. And that was the last time we will hear Martin's theme. It served its purpose, and since we will never see Martin or Henry again, there is no need for the theme to return. We meet Jude Law's Gigolo Joe in the next scene, and later he's framed for a murder of a woman he is scheduled to meet. He goes on the run and finds himself at a junk pile where other robots are looking for replacement parts. Nothing melodic here musically, just instruments providing some off-kilter music to accentuate the scene.
This is where David is as well, and the proceedings are interrupted by the sight of what appears to be the moon approaching the junk pile. It's actually a hot air balloon with Irish actor Brendan Gleeson at the helm, rounding up runaway robots for torture at a nearby flesh fair. In the underscore, the strings make things a bit ominous when the robots see the balloon. Then the brass come in when the robots begin running. We're building up to what I call the OMG moment of the score. The running robots are cornered in the woods by some men on motorcycles that are fitted to look like angry dogs. The men on motorcycles begin a chase scene through some dilapidated buildings, catching robots one by one. And the music you hear, if you have never heard it before, just might have you saying, oh my god. Yeah, that's a little heavy metal style music in a John Williams score, electric guitar and all. It's completely different from anything we heard previously in the score. Now, no orchestral instrument could accurately depict this chase, and even though the sound effects of the motorcycles drown out some of the music in the film, I could hear it clearly enough. For a minute or so as I was watching this in the theater, I wondered, did John Williams write this, or did it come from someone else? For many years, I thought it really did come from John Williams, but it turns out someone else did write that music. Williams' son Joseph contributed about two and a half minutes of music of this type for this scene, 45 seconds of which made it into the film, but it added another collaboration between father and son. The end of the scene comes when the motorcycle men find David and a few other robots hiding in a shed. The robots are caught in a net while the strings churn out a strong ostinato. David is caught in the net high in the air, finally dropping Teddy to the ground.
The big flesh fair scene features no John Williams music at all, but rather two songs by the metal band Ministry, who actually perform in the film. Perhaps the music we hear as David and Joe set off to Rouge City can be defined as the traveling theme, since it will be used for a very important traveling scene later. There's a comedic element to the music here as Joe talks about wooing women, particularly how he will satisfy the Blue Fairy when he meets her. Steven Spielberg rarely gives John Williams any musical instruction, but in the case of AI, Spielberg had one wish, and it came from Stanley Kubrick's notes. Kubrick wanted the arrival to Rouge City to be scored with Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier, and Williams obliged with a few seconds from that. After David and Joe have their mini-adventure in Rouge City, they take off in a police helicopter for Manhattan, where David has been told the Blue Fairy lives. The traveling theme, essentially just a pulse of syncopated notes here, plays underneath victorious brass and horns as the helicopter arrives at the submerged ruins of New York City and continues as they search for the place where the lions weep.
then they find the place where the lions weep, which is a building where gold lion statues have water pouring out of their eyes and mouths. This music is pure John Williams ecstasy, full of triumphant chords and orchestration to celebrate what we believe will be the end of a long journey. Notice that this is a scene where Williams pretty much did away with the electronic instruments in favor of the organic sound of the orchestra. David has reached what he believes is the place where he's going to become a real boy, so the music highlights that. As David realizes he's not as unique as he thinks he is, the music returns to the cold dissonance in the orchestra and on electronic instruments in a scene where he finds a bunch of David Dahl prototypes hanging from the ceiling. And it's at this point that David finally understands who he truly is. And this is a great moment when a box holding a David robot begins to shake. David jumps back at the sight and the camera closes in on his disillusioned face, with the choir rising as the camera gets closer. So David decides to jump off the building into the water, where he floats miraculously to Coney Island, which is about 18 miles away. He lands in a spot where he sees a statue of the Blue Fairy at the amusement park, and after taking the helicopter underwater, he pleads with the Blue Fairy to make him a real boy. Even after he gets stuck under the collapsing Ferris wheel, he still asks the Blue Fairy to make him real. The theme here is vocalized by soprano Barbara Bonnie, beautifully singing as if she were the Blue Fairy's voice.
Later, when David imagines that he is having an audience with the Blue Fairy, voiced by Meryl Streep, the music does not reprise the Blue Fairy theme. Perhaps that is because the Blue Fairy he is talking to is a projection of the AI beings that exist 2,000 years after David's initial request to the Blue Fairy statue. Those very evolved mecha have taken over the world in a new ice age and have restored David. The music we hear in the beginning of the scene when we travel with these mecha to the site where they resurrect David is nothing but chorus. The choir vocalizing this music is the Los Angeles Master Chorale, and their parts were recorded at Royce Hall on the campus of UCLA. If you have seen the 1989 movie The Abyss, directed by James Cameron, the harmonies that you just heard will sound familiar to you as the theme that composer Alan Silvestri wrote for a chorus for the mysterious aliens that lived in the deepest part of the ocean. And that's why I thought the Mecca and AI that resurrect David were aliens. I didn't know they were evolved Mecca until I was doing my research for this episode. So since David can't become a real boy, his only remaining wish is to bring Monica back to life. But the Blue Fairy says it can only be for one day. There's been much discussion about the creation of the music for this sequence and the visuals that match it. Williams wrote music that Spielberg enjoyed so much that Spielberg did not want to cut it up to fit the final edit of the film. So Spielberg promised Williams that the edit of the scene would match the music, not the other way around as it is usually done. The last time Spielberg did this was, memorably, E.T. and the Extraterrestrial. So the piano dominates the entire seven-minute scene and starts off with a performance of the love theme as we heard it earlier during the imprinting scene.
And here's the payoff of the love theme as Monica wakes up. Fun and Games theme returns for the first time since the pretend game of hide-and-seek earlier in the film. Here, David tells Monica about his adventures, and they really play hide-and-seek, this time with Teddy. The oboe takes the duty of playing his theme here. And now it's time for Monica to fall asleep and eventually to die again. The love theme comes back, but this time the notes have changed. The notes are flattened, making them inherently sadder as we prepare to say goodbye to Monica. That ending to AI really got me to cry, and the final scene is what got the tears started, but it was the exquisite end credits music that really got them flowing. I mean, I was bawling during the end credits. And it's Barbara Bonney's fault, really, because she returns to harmonize the love theme, making it sound so angelic and pure.
The love theme was used directly in a song featuring Lara Fabian and a very soon-to-be-famous Josh Groban singing For Always. The lyrics are by Oscar-nominated lyricist Cynthia Wheel. I like the song, but having two adults sing it makes it sound a bit romantic and not about the love between a mother and son. It just doesn't work for this movie. AI just wasn't the type of summer movie release that Spielberg fans expected. His last three summer releases, Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park 2, and Jurassic Park, were built more for the spectacle more than the story. AI only made $78 million in the United States on a $100 million budget, but it made its profit internationally with nearly $200 million. I think Spielberg learned his lesson, and he came back the following year with a different kind of science fiction movie, one that had a lot of action and also the biggest movie star on the planet. We'll get to that one very soon on The Baton. The score resonated with John Williams' peers and the media as it was nominated for multiple awards in 2002. I was happy to see it listed as a Golden Globe nominee as well as a Grammy nominee for Best Soundtrack Album. But it came up empty at those awards. AI did pick up one win for its score, winning the Saturn Award, which honors the best in fantasy and science fiction films. AI, of course, was nominated at the Oscars as well, alongside Williams' other composition for that year, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It was the sixth time in 28 years that Williams would receive double nominations in the original score category. And that doesn't count the 1995 Oscars when he was nominated in both the original comedy score and original dramatic score categories. I'll talk about this 2002 Oscars a little bit more in the Sorcerer's Stone episode, but Williams lost that Oscar to the first installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which was Howard Scores' first Oscar nomination after a little more than 20 years in the business, and he happened to fall upon this monumental film at the right time in his career. As he always does, Williams enjoyed the process of working on AI with Spielberg, but there was another great collaborator anxiously awaiting his contribution to another big fantasy film that year. So, Williams met with director Chris Columbus to work on the first movie featuring the boy wizard Harry Potter, creating music that would showcase how indelibly linked his themes can become for a movie character. Join me, if you will, in the next episode as we learn more about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Or Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone if you do not live in the United States. Drop me an email in the meantime at jeffswim at aol.com. And don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts and follow me on Twitter at Jeff Swim. This has been such a fun episode, and I look forward to having you join me next time. Until then, the baton is down. <laughs>